0: Hello, welcome, you're listening to Feed Play Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. It goes without saying that losing a baby through stillbirth is devastating. If you're a friend, sibling or parent of someone who's lost a child, it can be difficult to know what to do. You're probably grieving as well. Deb DeWard is an obstetric social worker at the Mater Hospital in Sydney and she's been supporting family through bereavement for over 30 years. Hi Deb, how are you?
1: I'm well, thanks. How are you?
0: Good, thank you. How did you come to be doing this kind of work?
1: Gosh, it's a long and complex story. Uh, I guess like (laughs) many people um, within my family, there had been the devastating experience of the loss of the baby and a small child. And that had had a, a huge impact in my family at a time, I guess, when things were managed in a very different way to the way in which they're currently managed at a, a, a level of, of being in a hospital. I think, too, I come from the family where we're just a bit baby crazy. Um, <laughs> I'd done my midwifery training and then I'd had some experiences working in a newborn intensive care centre and that had been a profoundly important experience. All my midwifery training had pretty much prepared me for was the expectation that pregnancy ended with the birth of a healthy baby and then to go to a newborn intensive care and realise that sometimes babies had terrible circumstances that might have led to their death after birth and then within that maternity hospital having access to families who, baby sadly, had died before birth.
0: Do you remember the first family you worked with who'd lost a child?
1: Yes, I can very distinctly remember being present at the birth of a little baby during my midwifery training and the baby died at birth. The mother was on her own without her husband. Um, and this wasn't such a long time ago. And the mother asking again and again, why isn't my baby crying? Why isn't my baby crying? Well, the obstetrician just quietly examined the baby out of her vision and, and just those questions unanswered, hanging in the air. And of course, those were the days, again, not so long ago, where that woman would have been actively discouraged from seeing her baby. And I can remember very much in the subsequent days talking with her about what the baby looked like and talking with her about how she might try and explain this to her older child who was waiting for this little baby to come home. So, yes, I I remember so clearly feeling utterly inadequate and full of mixed feelings around who made decisions on behalf of people, what was right, what was wrong for people in a situation like that, but intuitively feeling that this was an enormous experience for which I, as a very young pupil midwife, as we were called in those days, was was very unprepared, and that was, a you know, a, a profoundly important, impactful experience for me.
0: So you mentioned a few things there that happened then that wouldn't happen now. How has it evolved since then?
1: Well, I I think what's evolved since then is a recognition that this is an enormous event for a family, for a mother and a father and, by extension, their family, that we know that for many people to... Be able to have that space and time to think about seeing and being with their baby, to have an opportunity to create memories, to be able to do some of those tasks that we all do as parents, to care for the baby in a way, despite the limitations of the circumstances. And I guess to just unhurry the process because people clearly are so profoundly shocked that they don't know what to do or how to behave. Um, And often people will appear in that shock to be very composed and people will often comment to me that the family seem to be coping extremely well or or taking the news well, where in actual fact I, I think that they're in that state where the situation seems surreal and they're just performing in the best way that they they can and trying to live up to the social expectation of them being polite, reasonable people. Other people, of course, won't present like that. Other people will be extremely distressed. You know, no, no person's presentation is ever exactly the same. But I think part of my role, very much so from my perspective, is to slow things down to do my best to minimise some of the additional, the sensory overload that characterises hospitals so that people can just absorb some of what's going on, establish a relationship with someone like me and then be open to a discussion that evolves around what feels right for them, given that everything at that moment will feel so totally wrong.
0: (laughs) What can friends and family do to support someone going through this loss?
1: Yeah. Look, it's really very tricky because there are all kinds of timelines involved in this. And, again, people's needs are so different. I think initially many families feel that what they really need is their own family around. Now, we're living in circumstances at the moment Many people can't have their family around. Sometimes people need a lot of assistance with just communication. Sometimes it can be wonderful if someone volunteers to say, Could I let our circle of friends or, or work people know what's happened? Could I monitor? your emails or, or even your messages for you and, and get back to people for you because one of the tasks that can be overwhelming is responding to those those heartfelt messages that people send offering to do whatever they could to help. Sometimes people just don't have the the energy, the headspace to manage those messages. In weeks and months to come people will read those and those messages will be so precious, but they, they can be initially a, a burden for people who are just struggling to just manage just a multitude of emotions, the sense of unreality, and then this cascade of decisions that follows the death of a baby. I think sometimes practical things like organising a food roster and knowing that that might need to be done over weeks because sometimes people just have so much food that they just can't cope with it. And similarly, people have so many flowers that they can't cope with that. I mean, I saw a family at home yesterday and their very large table was completely covered to the point where the father was saying to me completely out of vases and, and they're beautiful. But it's also so terribly painful to see these flowers because... The flowers should be flowers of celebration and these are flowers of condolence and then we have to, to watch them fade and we have to throw them out and that's, that's difficult for us um, and, and that's something that people would have said to me many, many times. I think if people can hang in there for the long term knowing that most people after a, a bereavement or any other major life event often need to have a period in which they almost hibernate. But that if if you can continue to let them know in gentle ways that you're there, that you're thinking of them, that when they're ready, you're up for a coffee a walk, a meal, walking the dog for them. Those kinds of things are are really very helpful because the experience, the rawness of it goes on forever a very, very long time, and people will need nurturing and looking after and patience and understanding while they're trying to grapple with the reality of of the situation that they're facing.
0: Speaking as someone who very much wears my heart on my sleeve, um, I'm very conscious in those situations of, not putting my emotions onto the person who's grieving, but often feel so moved and sad by their experience that I can feel myself wanting to cry. Um, how do we judge whether it's okay to let those tears fall or to try them keep or to try to keep them in check? Because at times when I have cried, it's almost that I've noticed my friend has been, almost comforted to see that it's upsetting, like, you you know, that it was a really upsetting thing, not just for them, but for others as well. But of course, you also don't want them to feel like they have to console you. So what would you say is is the right way to approach a situation when you're feeling really sad and upset for your loved one that they've had this loss?
1: Mm, Yes, look, I, I think that's a very complex situation and many people struggle with it. I do think that it's okay to show how you feel so long as you bring back the discussion fairly quickly to the family's experience. I think you're right though, many people do have that sense of I have to comfort other people and reassure them that it's okay and that I'm okay and this isn't their fault and these things happen and we'll be okay. You can communicate your feelings in all kinds of ways, not just tears, but, but sometimes those tears just spring out of us unbidden, unable to be controlled. But as I say, if you're then able to bring the focus back to the family, how they're feeling, what kinds of things they might need from you, and that might be practical things and it might be just being able to be with them. It might be giving them space. Everything will change over time. So I, I think people very much appreciate really the fact that other people are able to express their, their shock and their sadness.
0: Let's talk about language because I think this is quite important for people as well and something that others who haven't experienced a loss may not understand. Do you have any um, guidance on how we speak about a child that a family's lost? I know that some families will often say we had three children, although only two are still living. Um, mm. I'm wondering if you've had experience with language so that people don't kind of think, oh, that's a bit odd because they haven't had the experience of losing a child.
1: Mm. Well, what I would say to that is that just in our everyday conversations, we are so many people, very personal questions as almost icebreakers, without realizing that we are sometimes going down a very bumpy path. I guess for many, many people, it's terribly important that they acknowledge all their children. And people will, over time, develop strategies to answer questions like that. And much of it will depend on the circumstances and the potential relationship with the person who asks. If they're in a shop and somebody says to them, is that your only one? They might say, yes because they know in that context they're not going to have an ongoing relationship with that person who's serving them as a a customer. If it's someone in a preschool setting where you know that you're likely to have an ongoing relationship with that family as your preschoolers proceed through preschool and then possibly into school together, then as a relationship builds, people might share their whole history if people don't share their history, often people have to do a little mental notation in their, their mind that says to that little child, you know how important you are to me, but I'm not going to use my precious energy by opening my heart so widely in a situation with somebody who may not know how to respond. So I, I hold you very close But in this context of this discussion, this person doesn't have that privilege of knowing of your existence, but your mother does. So again, these are things I think that come up for people all the time. And one of the most interesting conversations I've had with people in recent years has just even been around the inclusion of stillborn children in the last census. That was a a very significant event for many people to feel that their child was no longer invisible but was counted. And though though it might be screened in the sense of just a a, a number in some kind of government archive, symbolically an incredibly important recognition for many families.
0: What are some other well-intentioned things that people might do that perhaps we should refrain from doing when it comes to um, how we interact with families who've, who've lost a child?
1: Well, I think for a family, anyone who's experienced a great loss, one of the most difficult and alienating experiences that they have is that people in their effort to comfort discount the significance of the loss. And if that's a loss of a tiny baby through miscarriage or a baby who's been stillborn or a baby who dies after birth, some of the things that people say, again, with the best intention, are things like, you can have another child. At least you didn't get to know this little person. At least he or she didn't ever come home. Imagine how much more difficult it must be for people who lose a child at whatever age. None of those things are very comforting or helpful. They just make people feel that that person just cannot comprehend the depth of their loss. I think often what people need is to be heard or to have people who can just sit with them in the silence. People don't necessarily need an interpretation of what's happened. They don't necessarily need to know that other people have been through this experience and gone on and had the good fortune of having other children. Some people will find that helpful, but in those initial days and weeks, often people have only the space to think about all their hopes and dreams and expectations for what was to come and how those things have just been taken from them. And and then the process of how they form a story around that experience and how they find whatever it is that people need to find in order to move forward in their life, taking with them the best of that experience of that little baby's life.
0: And another thing I think uh, perhaps is not understood is that a loss like this is something that is part of your life for the rest of your life. have you had any experience in terms of how people mark anniversaries or deal with that passage of time because sometimes it can feel like it gets harder, not easier
1: well i I think it's like many experiences it it's very dynamic it will change, so that many people will acknowledge that the first year, for example, is an extremely important milestone. But the nature of grief is such that maybe year seven, for some reason, suddenly is a particularly painful year. I mean, that's the nature of it. it. It can creep up on you in the most unexpected ways. I think initially people will decide to do a specific ritual around that day. So some people, for example, will take the day off work and maybe have a family out in go to the zoo, go to the beach, do something very special. For other people, the remembrance is a more private affair. Other people still, the fact that it's a certain day doesn't really impact their grief. It's an experience that they carry with them every single day. So, again, people are very different. But I know in our experience, one of the reasons that we run a beautiful service each December is to acknowledge that many religious rituals around the end of the year and January are approaching and to give people an opportunity to come together with other people who've experienced a similar kind of loss, to be together, to acknowledge those children, to acknowledge the sadness, to acknowledge the courage it takes to keep going in a world that often wants to hurry us on that, that to me is extremely important to continue to offer those kinds of opportunities for people, and people take them up. So clearly there's a need. In, in years gone by, 100 years ago, people would have worn a black armband. We would have had ways in which we knew how to approach people, how to offer comfort how to get that balance right between maintaining people's need for privacy and quiet, but also that ability to know now's the time where I can slip a note under the door to say, would you like a cup of tea? Shall I walk the dog for you? Here are some scones. Those kinds of things perhaps were easier for us in generations past. Now I think many people don't really know what the etiquette is And of course, we live in a world where so much of our communication is done on platforms like social media. And for some people, that will be completely appropriate, but for many people, to receive a card, a handwritten letter, things like that have such immense meaning at times of bereavement. Whatever age or stage that bereavement occurs, those form forms. How do the mementos that a family might really hold dear and, and perhaps even more so when those letters or cards are offered around the death of a, a baby where there are so few memories that people can hold on to and keep safe but revisit over the
0: years. Deb, thank you so much for your time today.
1: My great pleasure, Siobhan. My kindest wishes to everyone listening today.
0: That's Deb DeWild. She's an obstetric social worker at the Marta Hospital in Sydney. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at parentbrand.com.au. See you next time.